0: Well, good morning. It is really good to see everybody and to be with you this morning. It's just a blessing to also have the opportunity to share uh, the word with you. And I am excited for this morning. You know, as uh, Amanda mentioned, we're uh, taking some time um, to really kind of drill down to some of the essentials uh, of the Christian faith. And so, uh, oftentimes when we we stand up here and we're uh, taking a passage of scripture and trying to do our best humbly to just I- explain it and give some context for it and uh, to preach the word of God. I'll a lot of times that comes with some uh, kind of assumed uh, presuppositions or some assumed uh, knowledge about what we're talking about. It's kind of hard to sometimes get out of our own way and remember what it was like to hear the Bible for the first time. And so we, we, want, we want to take some time over these next couple of weeks of actually going back to what are some of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, like what um, are these lessons built out of? You know, there is some um, some foundational truths to what it means to know, love, and follow Jesus has been what's been historically testified to about what Christianity teaches. And so that's the goal, and we're going to do this from time to time to make sure we are going back both to uh, remind our own hearts or just um, to uh, be conscious that we're all at different places in our faith journey, might have different upbringing, we might be coming into this room from a a different position of how much time we've spent with the Word of God and with following Jesus. And so this morning, we're really kind of going uh, back to the basics. We are going to talk about the Bible. Um, and so uh, this is obviously a significant uh, book in the life of our church. Um, our teachings are derived from it. Um, uh, historically, Christianity has built uh, a foundation on what we would say is absolutely the Word of God, uh, so much so that if you walked outside the building right up there on front, you'd see Park Springs Bible Church. Uh, this is a significant book. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. In, in a lot of ways, and I think if you are a Christian or not, uh, you could just objectively make the argument that this is the most significant book in the history of mankind. It is the most prolific. It has had the biggest impact. It has been around the longest. It is a significant book in human history. In fact, if you've ever wondered what the word Bible actually means, because the word Bible is not in the Bible, it actually derives from the Greek word biblos, which means book. So literally, like, this is the book and so it has been around for a long time um, and so we're going to be looking at today like how, how did we actually end up with this so i mean we're sitting in 2022 and you know a lot of times we're opening up these pages and we reference the fact that it's really old or from a different context or do a different people but i don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question it's like okay how did i actually get this book that's what we want to talk about today and so if we kind of look back at the history, um, you know, there there was a time when we didn't have all of the complete word of God available to all people. So if you kind of know the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament people didn't have the New Testament. Uh, but after the formation of the scriptures and the Bible was complete, like I said, the word Bible is not in the actual Bible, in the text of the Bible, it was an early church father named John Chrysostom that was the first in his writing to reference what he called Ta Biblia, which meant the books, which is important for us to realize that the Bible is a collection of books that makes up the Christian scriptures. And so, you know, oftentimes when we are in here, we're saying, hey, turn to uh, John chapter whatever. And so if you've ever looked at just your table of contents in the Bible, there's all of these different books listed. And so that's because it is a collection of writings. And so what the Bible is, it's 66 books written over the span of about 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages, but it tells one story. The story of redemption as found in Jesus Christ. And so our culture, specifically where we are, has been uh, dramatically affected by the teachings of the Bible. And at some point, even in your public school days, they probably talked about the impact that Christianity had on even the founding of our country. And if you just look at the history of the world, you can see the imprint that Christianity and the teachings of the Bible have had across cultures and civilizations and peoples through the centuries. And so we are definitely a, a product of that. We have all been influenced and affected, and it would be hard to grow up in the U.S. without having some Experience exposure to the Bible. And so, our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, he said it like this I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through the Bible. And so, the beliefs of the Christian faith, how we know, love, and follow Jesus, are found in the Holy Scriptures. It is in our best interest to know what this book says and how we ended up with it. And so it has had an incredible impact on the world. You know, and I think it is appropriate that it is just named the book because it kind of is the book. In fact, it was the first book ever printed in history. If you know some of these things, um, it was the first book ever printed with the printing press back in 1454 by Johannes Gutenberg, the guy who invented the printing press. It was literally the first book that they ever typeset and put down so that it could begin to be mass produced for people to know and read and understand what it says. And so the Bible is by far, by far the most translated, the most published, the most prolific, the most spread out book in all all of human history, the full Bible has been translated into 704 different languages, the New Testament has been translated into 1,551 languages, uh, every year on average there's about 20 million Bibles purchased in the U.S., and the average uh, household in the U.S. that identifies as Christian owns about nine Bibles. This is a prolific book that has had a huge impact on our lives. And in fact, when they first released the iPhone and they were doing the launch of the Apple Store, there was a hundred apps that were the first apps on the iPhone. And one of those was the UVersion Bible app to, that up to this point has 500 million unique downloads. And so even with the expansion of internet and technology, the Bible continues to be one of the most influential or arguably the most influential book of all time. And so what I want to do this morning is to talk about how we got it. Like, where did this book come from? What do we know about its formation? Is it reliable through the years? That's what I want to get into. And so I just got to warn you, um, There's going to be a lot of information. Uh, I have a bunch of slides prepared. It's going to be a little bit more presentation about the history of how we got the scriptures. Um, Some people might say nerdy, and I would accept that. Um, And so just so you know, um, I'm also, I'm doing broad strokes. So these are, um, uh, for every one of the things we talk about, there's probably some PhD that all he did was study this one thing. So we're going very broad, and there's probably going to be some information left out, but my, my goal today for you is that depending on, you know, however long you have followed Jesus or whatever your experience is with the Bible, I want you to leave here with a a deeper uh, understanding of how God has preserved his word for his people. And my hope is in um, um, just an appreciation and also an inspiration to dig into this book which, like President Lincoln said, I would affirm is one of the greatest gifts God has given to mankind, and is uh, the primary means by which we uh, encounter God is through His word, through the scriptures. And so I, I would invite you, go ahead and if you have a, a Bible, open up to the table of contents, uh, because there is a lot of history that goes into how we got this book and the formation of this book. And so uh, depending on your level of experience, you might have noticed that the Bible has an organization to it. And in fact, if you were in your table of contents, there's probably two primary sections in your table of contents. One is typically called the Old Testament, and then the aptly named New Testament. And so those are significant factors. And so we want to dig into uh, how we got both of those aspects of what we would call the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, and because they have a, a distinct history, but a linked history. And so it's very important for us this morning. And so we'll begin with the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament books are the Jewish scriptures that were passed to and through the Jewish people. Uh, the New Testament has the accounts specifically of Jesus' life and then the teachings that came out of Jesus' life through his apostles or through the ones who follow Jesus. And so that together, both the Old Testament and the New Testament make up the Christian scriptures. This is where we derive our teachings. This is where we derive our doctrines. It is from both the Old Testament and the New Testament together makes up the book, our Bible. But if you look at just the Old Testament, which is primarily, uh, the Jewish scriptures going back, uh, through the centuries, um, there is a central figure in the beginning of the formation of the Bible, and that is the man Moses. Most of you have heard the name Moses or seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt. You kind of know those stories. They are very familiar. And so what, uh, Jewish tradition tells us is that Moses was the author who wrote down the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, Jewish tradition holds that those were written down by Moses. And so although the history of the Bible starting in Genesis go back to the creation of the world uh, primarily through those people there would have been an oral tradition that was passed down through the lineage of these different people who God had revealed himself to and done mighty works among but it wasn't until Moses that it actually began to be written down. So he is credited as the author of the first 5 books of the Bible. And so I, I want to put up a timeline on the screen because once again this book was these books were written over about 15 hundred years, which is a significant amount of history. And so once again, we're going to do some broad strokes. And so if you kind of know a little bit uh, of the Old Testament, some of the stories and things we've gone through, these are some very broad strokes. So kind of initially, uh, the Jewish people who had become the Jewish people, um, God did a significant work in a man named Abraham. And one of the things he called him out from the place he was and said, Abraham, go out. So it begins this period where these people that are encountering God and listening to the one true God are no matter And so Abraham left his homeland. God had promised this land he was going to get through. And and so um, if you kind of know the arc of the Bible, uh, they eventually end up as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then uh, they get out of Egypt and they're beginning this pilgrimage back to the land God had promised them. And that's where we have the book of Exodus, which is where Moses kind of comes on the scene. And so it's during that period of the book of Exodus, like the history that's written, is when Moses is beginning to chronicle these first five books of the Old Testament, which also includes, you know, some of that oral history, that tradition that had been passed down, but then also what we call the books of the law. And so uh, Moses meets with God up on the mountains where you get kind of the Ten Commandments when those things happen. So eventually, you know, uh, they make it into the promised land, which is uh, modern day Israel, and they begin to establish themselves as a people in a specific spot. And that eventually leads up to the actual kingdom of Israel. And so you might know that first and second Samuel kind of talks about that history. And so Israel Israel, The Jewish people, they want an actual king. They want to be like the other kingdoms. And so there's this first man who's the first king of Israel named Saul. Uh, and then that translates to King David. And so you've probably heard that name, a significant figure in the life of Israel. And so really under David and then his son Solomon is kind of the height of the Jewish kingdom. That's when they reach their most influence, their most prominence. And so during this time also, there's other biblical writings that are happening. It's when the Jewish um, a wisdom literature comes about. A lot of the Psalms are written during this point. And so um, as uh, the people of God are flourishing under David and Solomon, uh, they are also compiling the written word of God so that they can continue to teach and instruct the people of God with what God wants from them. So a lot of the writings are happening. Uh, but if you know, after Solomon, uh, kingdom-wise, things begin to trail off pretty quickly. So, first and second Kings, it talks about some of the kings that followed the God and some of the kings that didn't. Uh, Israel splits into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, and things just begin to go badly. Uh, that eventually leads to what we typically call the exile. Uh, so another kingdom, uh, was raised up, Babylon, which came and destroyed, uh, the Jewish kingdom. And so then you have Babylon, and then the influence of Persia. A lot of people uh, from Israel are carried into another kingdom, into another culture, what we call the exile. And we were talking about a lot of this really recently when we walked through the book of Nehemiah, because that is a period of history where uh, Israel is just kind of decimated, but some writings still happen in that point. And then at at the end of that period is when some of the exiles return, uh, but then some are continued to be dispersed in other parts of the world. And so um, you we can hear some different kind of scholarly terms for what happened in the people of Israel, um, but we can call it the second temple period uh, for our purposes today. So, when Babylon uh, destroyed Israel, one of the things they did was they kind of leveled um, the temple of Solomon. And so, that was kind of the crown jewel of the Israeli empire where they came to worship their God who had led them out of slavery in Egypt. People from all the region came to see the wisdom that was going on in Israel. And so, that was destroyed. When this exile happened, uh, but eventually, when the people came back around 500 ish BC, they actually got to rebuild the temple. And so there was some stability that was reestablished at this period in the history of the Jewish people. And so, what most scholars believe is that although these writings had been happening at different points throughout the history of the Jewish people for different reasons, how God inspired these different people, it began to be compiled into the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, around the second temple period. And so that's about the time that the Old Testament ends with the prophet of Malachi. And so at this time, as the Bible or the Old Testament is being compiled into um, a a collection of books, um, there are um, some uh, rabbi traditions, some Jewish traditions, that as they were taking all the writings of the words of God, it began to be established in kind of a formation that there is an order established to the written words of God. And so this is actually kind of unique in history. And so just civilization wise, there are some other uh, peoples with writings and some written traditions. But what happened with the Jewish people is pretty significant that um, they had uh, taken their oral traditions, but then quickly what began to happen was this establishment of um, how important the written word was. And so you see that if you've read through the Bible, that God speaks to his people. But then also, you know, think about um, Moses and the Ten Commandments. He also begins to write down for them what his word is so that it can be passed on from people to people. And you see that in the different histories of the Jewish people, that sometimes they lose the books of the law and the people wander. And then they regain and are restored by the books of the law and they turn back to the word of God. So there is this importance put on what we would now call Scripture that God speaks to his people, and people have recorded it, and when the word is read, God uses that to speak to his people again. And so that is a uniquely Jewish tradition at this point in history, and it is significant for us this morning. And so the Old Testament gets formed in this period, and it's what um, uh, modern-day Jews would still look to as their holy scriptures, and they have a word for their Bible, what they would call the Tanakh, And so that is our Old Testament. And so maybe you've heard the word Torah before, which refers to the books of the law. So Tanakh, it kind of breaks down. Uh, The T and A stand for Torah, which is those first five books of the law. You might've heard the term Pentateuch, which is just another Greek word for that. Uh, And so that first part of the Jewish Bible is those books written under Moses. The the middle part is what they call the Nevi'im or the prophets. And so all of the prophetic books as God raised up people to speak for himself to the people of Israel, and then also the K is for the Ketuvim, which is just the other writings of the Old Testament. And so we have the wisdom literature. we got things like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We have um, the book of Job. We have some other things that are taken together. So collectively, that forms the basis of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, what uh, the Jewish people would still call the Tanakh, or the Word of God. And it is very significant, which is kind of how it was formed, but doesn't necessarily explain how we... Got it. And so this is ancient history. And so this was formed about 500 BC. So we're talking about 2,500 uh, years ago, which is a significant portion of history. Uh, So a significant thing happened that helped uh, the scriptures, these ancient writings that reveal God, continue to make their way towards modern people. Uh, Around 250 to 300 BC, there was an Egyptian king named Ptolemy II, and he is most significantly known for wanting to establish the greatest library in the world in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. And so that's one of those things you probably learned in world history is that there was the great library at Alexandria, and then it burnt to the the ground and all these uh, stores of knowledge were lost, but one of the things Ptolemy did was he commissioned 72 rabbis to update the Jewish scriptures and translate them from the ancient Hebrew into Greek. So at that time is what they called the Hellenization of the world. The influence of the Greek people had kind of spread out all over. And now Greek was the most common tongue and the most common written language. And so he commissioned these rabbis and they translated the scriptures. And we ended up with a translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint which is the Old Testament writings that were originally in Hebrew, they got updated into Greek about 250 to 350 B.C., so still about 300 years before the birth of Christ. And so this became the dominant translation of the Jewish scriptures. So all throughout the first century, um, a lot of times when the apostles or even Jesus himself are quoting the Old Testament, it is this translation of the Old Testament If you've read any kind of scholarly books, sometimes you might see it as just LXX. That's just for that 72. And it's talking about the number of rabbis who helped translate it. So this was really significant because this translation lived on. It kind of made its way, uh, past the BC mark into the AD and into the first century. It became, uh, the dominant translation of what was historically the Jewish people's writings and was known throughout the kind of modern world around Palestine and also up into Europe, into Greece. Um, And so that was one of the ways it continued to this kind of march of preservation towards modern times. Uh, so in the 9th the and 10th centuries, um, there were some uh, Jewish rabbis who thought that uh, the Jewish faith was getting too influenced by the Greek influence, that some of the philosophies were starting to be applied to the scriptures. So in the 9th and 10th centuries, there was a, a sect of Jewish rabbis called uh, the Masoretes who retranslated it from the Greek back into more modern Hebrew. So you might hear the term at some point, the Masoretic text, and my understanding is that is still the translation that most Orthodox Jewish people use today. And so one of the things that has happened over time is that as uh, people have looked at the Bible in the Old Testament, the question arises is like, okay, these are ancient writings, that were written over close to 3,000 years ago. And a lot of times it's really kind of easy to view it as like this long-term game of telephone. And so if you've ever played the game of telephone, you kind of know the idea that the message starts somewhere, but then as it is transmitted over time, it's really easy for the message to get off. And so for a long time, what people primarily had was this Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then this 9th and 10th century translation of the Old Testament back into Hebrew. But a really significant Significant thing happened in the 40s, and you might have heard of it. It's typically called the archaeological find of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I told you it's going to get a little nerdy today. I'm excited about it, though. <laughs> so in 1946, in uh, Palestine, the region of Palestine, a Bedouin shepherd discovered this system of caves. And when he stumbled into those caves, he found all of these jars, and inside these jars were all of these rolled-up scrolls. So it took several years because he would like take it to like an antiquities dealer, and it's like I don't want this. Um, but eventually, people begin to catch on that hey, this is kind of significant. So between 1946 and 1952 this whole system of caves was uh, discovered and began to get cataloged and they were pulling all of these ancient scrolls out of these caves that had been preserved. And so a big aspect of that, there was over 11,000 different documents they found. But one of the things they found were um, a kind of original transcripts of the Old Testament that were back in the ancient Hebrew. Most of them dating to around that second temple period, around 300 B.C. And so they had um, the like entire scroll of Isaiah in. Uh, more than three quarters of the Old Testament they were able to find. And so what happened is it enables scholars to look at, so, you know, the most recent Hebrew translation was 9th and 10th century. So now they were able to find a a translation that was about a thousand years earlier to around 300 B.C. And so now they had three points of comparison. Uh, Ancient ancient Hebrew, uh, the Greek translation, and then also the more modern Hebrew translation. And what they found in the 40s and 50s is that there is Incredible continuity—that it is not like a game of telephone, where it has slowly changed over time and morphed into whatever message they wanted it to be. That you can compare all of those, and um, they are—they are the same writings. And so we do get into sometimes when you get um, the scholarship approach, what they call transcription errors. Because everything was handwritten and people make mistakes and so you get a a word that was here over there or a, a letter that was spelled differently. But remarkably, the Old Testament scriptures are incredibly consistent in both their wording but specifically in their message. Over around a thousand years of looking at different translations that have begun to make their way into the modern world, we see continuity across the board, which is a significant historical factor when you think about it. And so the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and like I said, that predates Jesus by about 400 years, and so during the second temple period, the Jewish people, what they saw in the writings that God had preserved was that there was this kind of uh, closing of this time where God was revealing himself to them through the written word, and then for 400 years there was silence to the people of Israel, there was not a prophet that arose, but one of the things that occurred when they formed these books into a cohesive volume is that there is this narrative that is sprinkled throughout, and it is the narrative of the Messiah, that what the Jewish people believed and what God taught him through their word is that, you know, everything went bad when sin entered into the world, and there's a lot of ups and downs for Israel, but continually the promise of God was, hey, I'm going to send a Savior and he's going to fix the things that have gone wrong. And so the Old Testament really ends on a cliffhanger. Because, you know, that second temple period was not the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. You know, Greece rose up and then Rome rose up. You know, they were always subjugated by other kingdoms. They never had the influence and position that they had under David. And so it left the Jewish people waiting for something different. And you see this narrative sprinkled into the Old Testament, that the promises have not yet been fulfilled, that there's still a time coming when they are going to be fulfilled. Uh, The prophet Isaiah said it like this in chapter 9. He said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we see this narrative throughout the Old Testament scriptures that the promises of God have not find their, found their complete fulfillment yet. So they're pointing to something else that needs to come. And so for 400 years, there was silence to the Jewish people on the prophetic level. Um, and then we even mark this change in history because it has been so significant and had such an impact on the world. We go from B.C. to 80. We go from before Christ to Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so that brings us to the writings of the New Testament. And so the New Testament has the four Gospels, which are the narrative of Jesus. And then we have uh, the Book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the epistles, the writings of the people that were with Jesus. Um, so, just so you'll kind of know how that formation went, uh, the New Testament was written over about 40 years. So a much shorter time span that it was written. Uh, There's 27 books in our New Testament. And there's a lot more debate about the New Testament. Uh, Because honestly, anytime you get to Jesus, who is uh, specifically claiming to be God, it gets a lot more controversial. And so it has a lot more debate about um, uh, the formation of the New Testament, the dating of the New Testament, what books were allowed in, was there uh, some human element to what was kept out. A lot of those questions arise when we come to the New Testament. Uh, But very simple timeline, as best as people can tell from where we mark the transition to A.D. that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, somewhere between zero and the year 3 A.D., and then the crucifixion followed about 33 years later, so somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D., because, you know, they made that transition as they chronicled history in hindsight looking back at Christ, and so there is some, uh, some variation as to how specific those datings should be The Gospel of Mark, which they believe is the oldest book in the New Testament, the one that was most quickly written after Jesus, is usually dated around the mid-50s. So somewhere around 55 AD is when the Gospel of Mark was written. And then the last of the uh, book of the New Testament, uh, the book of Revelation, was written somewhere around the mid-90s. And so that's where you get the span of when the writings of the New Testament occurred, between the 50s and the 90s, so about 40 years. And those things began to be written. Uh, Within about 10 years of the resurrection, which is also pretty significant historically. And so, um, like I said, within the Jewish tradition, they began to develop this idea of scripture which meant a writing from God, a sacred text, that it was divinely written. And so that was something their whole community believed and revolved around, and that included Jesus, and the majority of his early disciples were all of Jewish descent, would have been brought up in the Jewish faith. And so a significant thing begins to happen when we begin to have the New Testament writings, and some of these are specifically written within the New Testament. And I'll give you an example. So most of us know who the Apostle Paul was, who wrote a large portion of our New Testament. So he was raised in the Jewish faith. He was brought up to be a um, a Pharisee, so like the religious life was his life. And so when he uh, converted to following Jesus, and God did the significant work in his life, he began to minister and to tell people like, hey, all of those promises in the Old Testament, they are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now we have new writings begin to come out. A lot of times they were letters to churches. And so here's one of the things I want you to pick up on. In Paul Letter His first letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 14 He says this If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, one of the things that's a significant factor is that Paul views his writings as from God. So they are a continuation of this tradition of how God spoke to his people and the word of God was written down. Paul views himself as a part of this tradition and saying that his words have weight as from the Lord. The Apostle Peter uh, said this in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation." Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Paul viewed what he was writing as from God Peter viewed what Paul was writing from God. So the apostles and disciples of Jesus realized that what God was doing in that time, after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended to the Father, that um, God was continuing to declare himself and reveal himself through the teachings of the apostles through the written word. And so already, even in New Testament times, it had authority among the community of faith which is important because sometimes people would say that it was uh, centuries later uh, that the church or the people of God decided that these writings had authority and elevated them. But since the beginning, we have not decided that the Bible has authority. We recognize its authority and we submit to it. And so even as they were being written, the apostles were aware of this. One more, uh, the apostle Paul writing in 1 Timothy 5.18 says this, he says, "'You shall not muzzle an ox.'" I'm sorry, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Here's why this one's significant. He says, for the scripture says, and then the first part of that quote is from the book of Deuteronomy. And then the second part of that quote is from the gospel of Matthew which is also pretty significant. It means the gospel was already written down and had been distributed widely enough so that Paul was reading the words of the New Testament, even as he was writing his aspects of the New Testament. So that's very significant that the formation of the New Testament was uh, testified to very early on by the Christians and the followers of Jesus. It was not something that came centuries later. They realized what God was doing in their midst was specific, and a part of this tradition started with the people in the Old Testament that God spoke to his people and revealed himself in that way. And so very early on, as testified to by the Bible itself, they knew that what they were writing was from God. It was part of this heritage of scripture. And so as uh, the New Testament was formed and those writings from the Apostles uh, took hold uh, what inevitably happened so once again pre-printing press is that uh, a letter from Paul or this gospel from the physician Luke was passed to a church and then there was people who would copy it um, so that they could be distributed wider and wider and so over the course of those first couple of hundred years of church history uh, the Bible the New Testament was copied down by hand over and over and over again now a reality is uh, that paper is not an everlasting substance and can get destroyed. And even now, I mean, we know how um, frail our current books are. If you go back then, everything was on papyrus, did not have uh, the same uh, type of longevity. And in the first couple hundred years of church history, Christians were outlawed in most places they existed. And so there were times when things got burned and communities got destroyed. But even with all that, over about the first Thousand years of the church's history, we have about 25,000 handwritten manuscripts from the New Testament. And so maybe you've heard that number before. So what that means is not always like, okay, here's a total copy of the New Testament. A lot of times it's a fragment because once again, paper does not last that long and humidity has an impact, bugs have an impact. So depending on how something was stored or preserved, things don't just typically make it that long into history. And so uh, the fact that there is about 25,000 different historical documents is also Historically significant, so uh, collectively people tend to remember things from those who are important or those who have uh, have power in the modern age. And so, for comparison, uh, Julius Caesar—he was a bit of an author himself. He wrote a history of some of the Roman wars called the Gallic Wars. And so, Julius Caesar, uh, most powerful man of his day. Uh, there's only 10 manuscripts left from Julius Caesar's copy of the Gaelic Wars, and the oldest one is about a thousand years removed from the original. And so the fact that there are over 25,000 manuscripts of parts of the New Testament is pretty historically significant. Most of those come from the 6th and 7th century, and then it begins to tail off towards the end, and then Almost all the manuscripts disappear by the time the printing press comes around, because once again, people weren't keeping the handwritten copies, they transitioned to printing. But it's pretty significant. And so there are a lot of first and second century writings uh, from who we would call like early church fathers that reference the scriptures, that reference the New Testament. So I wanted to give you some dates so that we can kind of collectively see that very quickly the people of God established the New Testament and put it in conjunction with the Old Testament to be the complete testament of God, what God revealed about himself to his people, to view it authoritatively as the Holy Scriptures. Uh, So we have some writings from a guy named Irenaeus. Uh, So in 170 AD, in his writings, he actually uses the term New Testament, and he mentions all four of the Gospels, um, which is significant. So depending on where you were, that means handwritten copies were being carried by foot all over uh, the ancient world. And so by 170, this church father had read all four Gospels, uses the term New Testament, which is where we derive it from, Uh, We have another document, what they call the Moratorian Fragment, uh, that dates to about 200 A.D., that has a list of the books put together. It mentions 22 of the 27 books in the New Testament. And then in 367, another church father named Athanasius, He writes a letter to his congregants and within that letter that has been preserved, he mentions all 27 books of the New Testament and he uses the term canon to describe the scriptures, which is the idea that we have been given an established rule that should not be changed. So a lot of times we talk about the canonization of scripture, which means what we have in the Bible, we believe is God's revelation of himself. So we're not gonna add on to it and we're not gonna change it. It's a fixed rule that God has given And so Athanasius mentions that in 367 AD. This is probably not the earliest mention of the New Testament. This is just the one that survived. And so they literally still have a copy of that letter where he mentions these things. Um, there is a handwritten copy of the Bible, which is pretty significant, because also at this point, um, people are transitioning to actually have books. Books are a new thing. So before, it was scrolls. And so sometimes you might see the term, and you see it here, uh, called a codex. A codex means like writings that were established in a book. So they begin to have pages and bindings. They were just changing the way that the written word was communicated. And so there is a handwritten copy of almost the entire Bible called the Vo- uh, Codex Vaticanus, and for the past 100,000 uh, years, scholars have um, applied textual criticism. So this is one that is very studied. Uh, this translation of the Bible, it belongs to the Roman Catholic Church, so it's at the Vatican. And so this is one people go back to and look at over and over again, and there's all this uh, scholarly uh, cri- and textual criticism that's been looked at with this book, and is considered the most reliable manuscript, manuscript meaning handwritten, of the New Testament. There is another one that dates uh, similarly called the Uh, Codex Sinaiticus. It's a handwritten copy. It has half of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament. It's in the British Museum in London. And so very quickly on, historically speaking, there is actually like a formed Holy Scripture Bible book that is being distributed to those around, which uh, imagine copying the Bible by hand. It sounds like a pretty daunting task. So there's a reason there's not a whole lot of these floating around both just the volume of the Bible and then also it surviving for 1,500 years is pretty significant. Uh, but uh, for centuries, ever since we actually had copies of the Word of God, uh, there has been a lot of criticism sometimes heaped upon it or questions about, okay, um, how, why was this established as part of the Bible? There are other writings that are from a similar time frame that Christians said, no, those are not part of the Bible. And so a lot of times the accusation of kind of manipulation is placed upon it. Uh, But we can look back through the history of the church and see that there was um, a specific criteria and a, a specific acknowledgement by the people of God of what was Holy Scripture, what was Bible, what was from God, and what was not, and so that's pretty significant, and so there are these criteria we can look back in through history of see what was included in the New Testament and what was not, and so those things uh, are are following. Uh, One is apostolic authorship, and so um, definitely the testimony of Jesus is going to be more certain if it comes from somebody who was with Jesus. And so uh, if you know how the Gospels are formed, two of the Gospels are written by Jesus' two of his 12 disciples, but the other two were close associations. So I mentioned that the Gospel of Mark is considered the earliest. So Mark was not one of the 12, but he was um, a contemporary of Paul. So if you, it talks about John Mark in the Bible that was on some of Paul's missionary journeys. And so that is the author of the Gospel of Mark. And so what uh, church history holds about Mark is that he actually um, uh, derived a lot of his gospel from interviewing Peter and then also even spending time with Jesus' mother. And so it was still firsthand accounts of Jesus uh, from his early followers that wrote down, what did he say? What did he do? Can we be sure of this testimony? So one is apostolic authorship. The other aspect is early church acceptance. And so once again, very quickly on into the second century, we have the the leaders of the church, the bishops of the different cities saying, hey, these are scripture. These are not scripture. Uh, So that's one of the aspects of it. Did the community of faith recognize it as being from God? Another aspect is uh, no contrary teachings. So once again, uh, all 66 books, all 1,500 years, there is a narrative that points to the redemption of God as found in Jesus Christ. And so there is a consistency all throughout the Bible, this arc of redemption you see within it. And that is important. Because also all of the writings of the New Testament date to the first century. Now, at times there's been other writings that people have promoted, and sometimes you hear that. You hear things like the Gospel of Judas. Um, there's a a collection of writings called the Gnostic Gospels, and you hear some of those things like, hey, the, the church just kept these out, so they chose these things over others. All of those date to later in the first century, and all of those have um contrary teachings to the narrative of Jesus, as by the people that were with Jesus. And so very early on, the church was aware of those other writings and rejected those as not being from God. And so uh, by the end of the first century, uh, the people of God recognized that, hey, these writings that the Holy Spirit inspired through these people, these are from the Lord, these are part of that tradition of scripture, and these other writings are not. There's another significant figure in the church in Rome named Clement, and he had some writings that even were right into the second century. And so the church distributed some of his letters, and even within his writings, he was like, hey, um, yeah, read my letters, but really go back and read Paul and read Peter and read the scriptures. And so very early on, the church recognized that these books were a part of the canon, were a part of that tradition of holy literature in the scriptures, and the other ones were not. But once again, it leads the question, okay, that's still um, 2,000 plus years ago. How did we get the Bible today? As the church began to be established, specifically after Rome um, stopped outlawing Christianity and there was a, a lot more formation of what becomes the Western church or the Catholic church, Um, In 385, there was a pope who commissioned another church father named Jerome uh, to update the biblical text from Greek, Latin. And so he spent several years doing that, but Jerome eventually translated the entire Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin, and it became the official uh, text of the Catholic Church, uh, so much so that, you know, end of the 5th century or beginning of the 5th century in the 400s when he completed it, it became the official translation that the Catholic Church used for all of their masses until 1979. So a significant translation of the Bible that uh, stood the test of time and is continued to be looked at. And so it's referred to as the Vulgate, which just means the book in Latin. And so that was a significant translation that brought up the Bible several thousand years so that people could continue to read it, know it, understand it in their own language. That was significant. And then really, um, uh, f- as far as Bible translation goes, so the Latin Vulgate was 385, uh, 411, somewhere in there. Um, but And it's not really until the Reformation that that process continues. And so, as we all can probably recognize, language is dynamic and it changes over time and it changes with culture. And so it is significant uh, that the Bible continues to be updated so that the people of God can understand it and we can internalize it and learn from it and see God in it. And so in in 1570, when the Protestant Reformation kicks off in Germany, um, Bible translation begins to happen again. It hadn't really been a significant factor in the history of the church, but a couple of things are all combining. So one, printing press, that's a thing now so the, the ability to distribute written information is more significant. And then also, it kind of coincides with what they call the Renaissance in Europe, where um, out, even outside of the church, they started to look back at the classics. So they were looking back at ancient Greece, the, the Greece philosophers, and so there was this renewal of interest kind of in ancient things and bringing them into the modern times. And so that also happened with uh, members of the church. They started to look back of, hey, we have the Latin scriptures, but what if we look back at the original writings in the Greek, what if we look back at the original writings in the Hebrew, and so there was people that began to take it upon themselves of, hey, I'm going to look at the original scriptures, the text of the Bible, and begin to update it into languages people can understand, and so there was many people that took part in that. Uh, A significant one is a man named William Tyndale, because he produced the first English version of the New Testament in 1525. So it was in 1525, the Bible begins to make its way into English. Uh, uh eventually uh, the King James Bible was commissioned uh, by King James. And in 1611, the entirety of the Bible was translated into English. And so translation has continued to happen because once again, language is dynamic. And also uh, our ability to share information has gotten so much better over time. So before, if you wanted to be a biblical scholar and like, hey, I want to go read the Codex Vaticanus. You know, you probably had to write a letter, get permission from the Catholic Church, maybe take a boat all the way to Rome, uh, do all of those things. But now uh, we have the internet, which is pretty incredible because it has allowed the sharing of information. So now if you are a biblical scholar, you could sit in your home and if you paid for a couple of subscriptions, you could look at a picture of every single of the 25,000 manuscripts you wanted to look at. And so it is given the ability for people to continue to refine translating uh words that are over 3,000 years old in a language uh not a modern person speaks into the context into the language of the modern day so that we can uh, have trustworthy translations of the scriptures that compose the basis of the Christian teachings. And so translation has continued to happen. When me and Charlie preach is typically from, uh, what's. It's easy to term, the ESV, which just means the English Standard Version. And so this translation of the Bible was actually completed in 2001. It took about three years. Uh, there was 13 people with PhDs who got together and did the bulk of the translation project. And then after they finished the translation, another 50 PhDs reviewed, critiqued, and scrutinized their translation to make sure it was accurate as possible before it actually began to be published in 2001. And so we we do have a, a lot of different translations of the Bible, and you can look at those histories, okay, like, hey, when was the NIV completed, what was the thought process behind it, but over and over again, the people of God, because we believe this is the word of God, we have taken seriously getting that word right. And so sometimes scrutiny is placed upon us of uh, trying to exclude or twist. But over and over again, what I truly believe is like God revealed himself through his word and it is in my best interest to know what that word says. And because of that, I want these translations. I want to include all of the earliest manuscripts. I want to have all of that criteria to make sure I can have confidence that the word I am reading today and proclaiming to you is an accurate representation of what God revealed to his people 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago. So even this day in 2022, we can have confidence in the word of God and know it is from him and still be moved by the Holy Spirit, using that word in my heart and in my life. And so finally, uh, I know that was a whole lot of history. And once again, that's just the broad strokes. There's a lot of minutia in there. Uh, What what I would like to share with you is our approach to the Bible, uh, because it is specific. Um, And so uh, there's just a couple of words I want to leave you with. I want to keep this simple. Um, But here's our approach to the Bible. We believe that the Bible is inspired. And so what we mean by that very simply is it comes from God. It was written through men, but it comes from God. And this is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We believe the Bible is inspired. We believe the Bible is infallible. Simply put, it doesn't make mistakes. And so what the Bible says about marriage is true about marriage. What the Bible says about money is true about money. The Bible does not make mistakes because it comes from God. Psalm 19.7 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And then finally, just to to keep it simple and short, uh, we believe the Bible is authority. And if I could make that simple for you, I'd say it like this, I should trust it more than I trust myself. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight because there's going to be times when I have questions or want to do things my own way and in those moments when I am following Jesus, I need to realize my uh, default posture should be one of submission, that I should trust the word of God which has stood the test of time and is uh, authoritative. I should trust it more than I trust myself. So, once again, to just um, um, reiterate uh, what President Lincoln said, it's an incredible gift God has given to us. Um, How I've viewed the Bible even even since I was a kid, since I was brought up in the faith and brought up in the tradition um, that my parents taught me the scriptures and they taught me to know, love, and follow Jesus. You know, I remember even beginning to think in high school that, like, in in some ways, uh, I'm basing a lot of my life off of this book. And so if that's the trajectory of my life, if I want to know, love, and follow Jesus, and I'm basing what I know and believe about Jesus off of this book, it's in my best interest to know what this book says. And so there is one approach where you could uh, be in here on a Sunday morning and me or Pastor Charlie or somebody else is going to teach you what this book says, but more than anything else, as one of your pastors, and because I love you and I want you to experience Jesus, my encouragement is for you to get into this book. And I know it is complicated and it's confusing and there's large portions that might put you to sleep, but it is God's gift to us, his uh, true and trustworthy testimony. I love what the Apostle John records in the book of Revelation when he experiences a vision from Jesus and what Jesus said to him. He says, write these words down for they are trustworthy and true. And I think that is a a testimony of the whole of the Scriptures. And so my encouragement and my hope from this morning was to give you a bit more context, but also um, to um, hopefully light a fire under us to know the word of God, to know this testimony that has been preserved uh, through his people and oftentimes through the blood of our Christian brothers and sisters to make sure that we could have access to knowing and understanding Jesus Christ through the revelation of his word, the holy scriptures. And so as I wrap up, I want to leave us with one other bit of prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 40, uh, verse six and eight, say the following. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me?